Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Richard McGee, an economist and senior fellow at the Schwartz Center for Economic Policy Analysis and the Institute on Race, Power, and Political Economy at the New School. He served as executive director of the Congressional Joint Economic Committee, assistant secretary for policy at the U.S. Department of Labor, and in senior governmental positions in New York State and New York City. He's also the author of Unequal Cities, Overcoming Anti-Urban Bias to Reduce Inequality in the United States, which we'll be talking about today. Richard McGay, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So I thought we'd start by talking about why cities are so economically important and exactly how much of an economic impact they have, because I think that while most people might understand this, the extent of their impact, uh, you had some pretty interesting statistics on that. Yeah, I think it does surprise people. The United States and most advanced economies, and increasingly around the world, are urban. We live in an urbanized period of the economy. In 2020, U.S. metros produced almost 90% of Americans' GDP as metropolitan areas, which the cities are in. The top 100 metros in the U.S. produce 74, 75% of GDP. The majority of output in 46 of 50 of our states comes from metropolitan areas. So cities and the metropolitan areas around them really are the economy. They also are the hubs of innovation and new growth. They're the places that process new entrants to the country through immigration. So we are essentially an urbanized metropolitan economy. And why is that? Why do cities have such a really disproportionate impact, you would think? Yeah. The cities do four things for economists, and they they bring people together, uh, you know, just proximity. You get people around each other. That can itself can be a good thing. Markets get bigger. They also are hubs of innovation. And I think this is the part of cities that urban economics in particular has been bringing out for the last several decades, although if you you can go all the way back to Jane Jacobs, the great urbanist who emphasized this role. But by bringing together different ideas, disparate people, disparate factors, different types of industries, you get innovation. The auto industry comes out of Detroit from two factors. Detroit was a place that had shipbuilding and agricultural produce in wagons. So there's lots of engine repair. Henry Ford was a apprentice engine repairman. And and eventually people said, let's put one of these engines in one of these wagons and see what happens. And you get this, the motor transport that we have today. You can also see it culturally in a place like New Orleans, where Caribbean music came together with freed slaves and their music, which came together with oddly brass bands driven by Philip Sousa and German immigrants to the U.S. And we get jazz. So the cities are this really these hubs of innovation. As they grow, they also then differentiate and they get a more of a division of labor. So you get finance, law, more innovation around the particular industry. That attracts people. And in a virtuous circle, you get growth. And now I want to make a distinction because you make this distinction in the book, and it's an important one. There are a lot of people who would almost use the terms city and metropolitan area interchangeably, but that's not actually 
correct. You point out there are some really important differences, especially when it comes to inequality. I was hoping you could explain the distinction between those two. Sure. So I gave Detroit as an example. Let's uh, go back to them. There's the city of Detroit. There's the metropolitan area of Detroit. And then we use Detroit as a shorthand now for the auto industry, at least for the American auto industry, even though the production plants of American owned auto companies are spread all over the country by now. So the city of Detroit at the center is ringed by a large number of governments in the metropolitan area. The economy is regional and metropolitan. The economy doesn't need to confine itself to a political boundary. But the form we've evolved in the United States, and this is a central theme of the book, is to hem in that central city that has all those economic effects I talked about before, innovation, bringing people together, a division of labor. It hems in the city with a ring of often hostile, often racially different and whiter suburbs. And that's the metropolitan area. So for when we say Detroit, there's a big difference between the city and the metropolitan area. And that's a, the form that we have across the country. I think it clouds our thinking about policy and it contributes to inequality. And I want to focus a little more on inequality because it's a focus of your book. And I guess with a real basic question, why should we care about inequality? Not not from a human perspective, but from an economic perspective. Because one argument that I've heard is inequality sort of in and of itself isn't really necessarily a bad thing. And we really need to look at something more like, I don't know, standard of living. You know, there's use an example in the book. You talk about that $135 million penthouse apartment at 432 Park in Manhattan. And and obviously there'd be a lot of inequality between whoever happens to be living there today and me, but I'm doing okay. And that person's obviously doing great. So why is inequality even a thing, I guess? Yeah, I'm not an I'm not arguing for absolute equality. There's really no such state that we could achieve. It would be too hard and costly to obtain it. But that it's the degree of inequality and its persistence that are the problems for the United States and I think for the rest of the world now. But let's the book is mostly about the U.S. Inequality is one. It's skyrocketed, so it's getting much worse. It's not getting better. Uh, there's a million pieces of data on this. I'll, I'll take one. It's CEO pay has ridden, risen over 1,200, that's 1,200% since 1978 versus 15% for the average worker's increase. 1,200% versus 15%. So that's not an improvement. And, and we're in historically high periods of inequality. So one of the premises said, well, don't worry, everything works out. People will get a share of that and things get better, but we aren't seeing those shares done. Now, there are huge problems that presents both economically and politically. Economically, the, having the super wealthy control that much of consumption distorts investment. It distorts what people buy. There's a good argument that it slows economic growth overall, while uh, politically, of course, it allows a huge influence of money in politics. That in turn reduces the income that we need for the necessary public goods like infrastructure, education, all the things we say that will help people out of poverty, we underfinance uh, in part because the super wealthy are able to control the tax system and pay uh, disproportionately low taxes. There's also an argument that inequality hurts innovation. It twists 
the innovators to look for goods that they can sell to the super wealthy. Again, it's this power of their consumption that can pull innovation and even industries in a direction that is not the most productive for the economy. There's some good analysis, not a huge amount, I would say, but some that done by the International Monetary Fund, the OECD, that finds that areas with higher inequality grow more slowly and have less of a reduction on poverty. So for all those factors, you know, and it's just a bad look, uh, some inequality, of course, we're going to have some rich people, but the massive gap between the rich and everybody else right now is creates both significant economic and political problems. Yeah. And I really wanted to emphasize that because I think a lot of people, well, some people would, would argue, well, inequality is about envy and resentment, but there's a lot of good evidence to suggest that, no, it actually is a drag on the economy, which is something you bring out in the book. I, uh, another argument some people have put forward is, well, of course, there's inequality in cities, but that's actually a, a positive thing in a weird way, because if cities are such are such economic engines, well, then poorer people are drawn to cities, they come there, they they do better, they move up the ladder. And then, of course, as they do better, then more poor people, different poor people move in. And so inequality in, a, in that sense would be an idea that the system's actually working. What do you think about that argument? Yeah, Ed Glazer at Harvard, probably our leading mainstream urban economist now and a super smart guy says something I'm paraphrasing is something like cities aren't poor because poor people live there. Poor people move there for this hope of making their lives better. So that's why you see poverty in cities and uh, supports this idea that cities are the place where poor will be get. They'll get skills. Uh, if they're immigrants, they'll get integrated into the society and they'll move up so that cities are this engine of opportunity. And to some extent, there's some truth to that. It's certainly true in American history that cities were the places that took in both foreign immigrants and also internal immigrants that were displaced from agriculture, particularly Black Americans who in the 1900s in the Great Migration moved from the South when Southern agriculture displaced them to Northern cities looking for opportunity. So that is one of the things we hope cities will do is be that opportunity engine. But again, we're not seeing it the way that we used to. And in the case of Black Americans, never really saw fully for reasons that aren't particular to cities, but that cities share and around structural racism in the United States. But let's stay with what, let me go first to what's going on now with it. Economists said that is exactly what will happen. Poor people will move to cities. They'll get better skills. They'll get better jobs. They said these job growth will attract them and they'll move up. And over time, uh, inequality will diminish. It's called convergence in economic language. But we're not seeing it. We're not seeing the convergence between the rich and the poor, or the middle class, really, that these income shares, as I cited earlier, are getting worse, not better. So whatever's going on with that convergence engine, it's not happening. We need to, I need to specifically mention, and we'll come back to this later, then there's the role of racism in this, that blacks who moved to the North during the Great Migration, there's some unfortunate evidence that that may have lowered wages for blacks altogether because they were in such segregated labor markets. And that's not entirely the fault of cities. I'm going to later we'll talk about, I see the growth of these metropolitan forms and suburbs as very tied into keep having an ongoing racially discriminatory impact. So 
We're not seeing it now. We have seen it in periods in the past where cities have played that role. You'll still you can find stories, of course, all the time about successful immigrants or successful poor people who have risen up. They're much more likely to do it in cities than rural areas. So still cities are still a better bet for them. But we're seeing the slowdown of that role that cities have played in generating more equality. And if I understand correctly, it's not just that inequality is bad for a number of reasons. It's it's a real thing. But your argument is that in, in large part, it's a function of policy choices that have been made and, and policy choices that are very anti-urban in nature, which on the face of it seems kind of strange because if if the cities are where the economic growth is, where the economic power is, you would think that just the reverse, that policy would be oriented toward those areas. But that's not really the case you found. And so maybe you could talk about what are, and this is a very broad question, but what are sort of the ways in which policy has become anti-urban in nature? What's driving that? Yeah, uh, this probably will be. There are a number of factors. So I like to reach back for starters for America. Americans always been had an anti-urban bias to it. I, Thomas Jefferson, the great founder, the writer of the Declaration of Independence, one of the founding fathers, said in 1800, quote, I view great cities as pestilential, pestilential, <laughs> the morals, the health and the liberties of man. Those who labor in the earth are the chosen people of God, while the mobs of great cities are like sores on the human body. So that's it's wow. strong language, right? Yeah. And you might say, well, Jefferson's a, he's a, a old-time slaveholder, so agriculturist, you might expect that. But it wasn't uncommon. George Washington said the tumultuous populace of large cities are ever to be dreaded. Now, they were partly scared of the French Revolution and what was happening in Paris at the time. But when the United States was formed, I think around 6% of our population was, was lived in cities. Or we're an agricultural country when we started, compared to the uh, United Kingdom, or at least England, which was over 30, almost a third urban, mostly in the London area. So we built this system that valued state governments, very much favored agriculture, and locked in several factors which have now come back, I think, to hurt cities and hurt us generally democratically, but I'll stick with cities. Uh, we gave states the power in the Electoral College and the Senate, huge disproportionate representation there. And that means that their interests are overvalued. That was in part, again, because the slave states got uh, the three-fifths apportionment, which also, of course, gave them more seats in the House up until the Civil War. So that we've got this really built-in structure of states which are, that are anti-urban. So that's step one in the U.S. Step two is why can't cities just do things on their own to fight inequality? Why do states get to control them, which they do in the United States? Cities are creatures, with a few very rare exceptions, of, of their state government. And this was fought out in the late 19th century over Railroad financing, actually, it wasn't about a big movement for democracy or equity. The cities and states, everybody was issuing bonds to get try and attract railroads, and more bonds kept getting issued than the market could support, and so that helped feed periodic financial crashes. So there was a fight about who could could cities just keep issuing bonds on their own, and through a long, legal, protracted struggle, the states won that battle. 
an Iowa jurist named Dillon, now called Dillon's Rule, says that basically cities are creatures of states and cities could uh, states could destroy cities, take away their charters altogether if they wanted to. So if they could take away their charters altogether, they can regulate them and do what they want to. And this is called preemption. So states now routinely preempt what cities can do on their own to do things. So that's big bucket number two. So big bucket number one is the structure really of our government constitutionally and empowering the states. Bucket number two is state governments with an anti-urban bias winning out over cities, cities being controlled by their state governments. And then step three really is the post-World War II period, where which is a time of great economic growth, but it grows the suburbs around cities. Cities used to grow just by annexing. If you tried to build a new suburb outside the city, it would just annex it in. But that slows down as the suburbs get wealthier and get more political power. So by certainly by the World War II period, annexation has slowed down as a way for cities to grow. And these independent municipalities with their own school systems, their own tax bases, their own police forces, fire departments, grow around cities, often racially disproportionate, and that is fed by public policy. Ira Cass Nelson, the political scientist, has a great book called When Affirmative Action Was White, and he goes through the GI Bill. On the one hand, one of our great historic moments for public investment, for equity, for sending people to college, and for helping them buy houses, and Cass Nelson gives you details about how racialized the GI Bill was for higher education. It was administered by Jim Crow segregationist states in the South. So if you were a black veteran in Virginia, you couldn't go to the University of Virginia. You were sent to a much more inadequately funded and resourced school. But in housing is really the pernicious place where this hits, at least for cities. Mortgages guaranteed by the federal government, the great work by Richard Rothstein in his book, The Color of Law, demonstrates that these mortgages were allowed were for single-family homes, not for multifamily, and they had racially restricted covenants in them or were allowed to be put in them, that you could not get a mortgage in some of these, many of these suburbs if you did not sign a contract that forbade you from reselling the house to a black person or a non-white person. So as well as our growth of roads and automobiles and the stifling of mass transit, what that did, I'm sorry this is going on too long, that did was really make our education system, which was already biased against the poor and especially against blacks, really segregated. The sub We finance education in the United States through local property taxes. The wealth of these suburbs allowed them to have very good schools while the cities uh, tax bases fell. Federal government withdrew spending in a lot of cases. And the city, still the driver of the regional economy, still the source of that prosperity that those suburbs are living off of, does not share equally in the returns and the taxes from it. So those are three big things that we have a constitutional bias against it. Our states have a long-standing anti-urban bias and metropolitan growth patterns where one regional economy is broken up into often literally hundreds of governments uh, that are different or hostile towards the city at their center. I guess this has a particular resonance for me because I, I grew up in, in this, living in the city of Cleveland, and now I live in the city of Cincinnati. And, and it seems to me I've witnessed what I guess I would call sort of the hollowing out of the actual city and city government and city services, while all around me, there were wealthy suburbs. And that seems to be exactly the sort of thing that you're talking about, right? 
Absolutely. That is our metropolitan pattern in the United States and fed by public policy. Obviously, people make choices about where they want to live. I'm not, they weren't forced to go live in suburbs, but the deep subsidy on home mortgages, the deep subsidy on transit, everything from road building to gas prices to automobiles, and the the uh, parallel lack of spending, lack of investment in the core cities. So Cleveland is just, I gave a talk at Cleveland State recently, is a five-county metropolitan area with over 167 local governments and probably a lot of additional special districts like water districts or park districts or other sorts of things. So you have this enormous fragmentation in what is one single regional economy, and that's inefficient and also disproportionately unequal. And in the book, you actually look at some specific cities, three actually, New York, Los Angeles, and Detroit. And I want to get into what you found. But before we do that, can you talk a little bit about why you chose those three cities to take a closer look at? Yeah. So when I went in, when I started writing the book, I wanted to see, well, I I kind of know I want to document this lack of support for cities in policy. So are they really on a, what can they do on their own? My initial initial working title for the book was On Their Own. What can cities do on their own to fight inequality and, and grow their economies? And so those three cities are all places that tried to do steps to fight inequality. New York, historically for a long time, being the hub of uh, immigrants and immigrant politics in the United States. Detroit, when the auto industry was booming in the 50s, absorbing a, a lot of black, but also poor white workers from the South with a very union-driven focus from the United Auto Workers. And then Los Angeles, more recently in the 1990s, after the Rodney King riots, had a very strong movement to try and address inequality socially and economically. So I took those three because they all tried to do something about inequality. I have to say I ended up in the book more skeptical, sad than when I started, because I don't think that any of them, those cities are able to move the needle on inequality significantly on their own, even though they've tried hard. And that, that's what I wanted to get into. Uh, I mean, were there any things you could point to that maybe looked promising or were at least marginally successful? Or, or if not, what got in the way of these of these efforts? Sure. Actually, no, all of them did do some successful things, but but they were stopped by, I think, larger structural factors. Some of it is if you live in the United States, you're living in a society that's kind of tilted towards inequality. We we care more about inflation than we care about job creation historically. So that the and the macro policy of the Federal Reserve and other places, cities can't control it. We don't have national health care systems, unlike any other, um, virtually every other advanced uh, capitalist democracy. That's a huge expense. And again, falls the problems fall disproportionately on the poor. Our schooling and education are locally controlled and financed. We don't have national education systems. And, but these, as I talked about before, the way we finance schools advantages the suburbs and disadvantages the cities. So, on a num- so there are a number of overarching structural factors that make it hard for cities to do things. New York did try and had some success for quite a while when it was a pretty thriving, unionized, manufacturing-based city, although the manufacturing jobs weren't great. There were garment jobs, but they did do a lot of work in that way. Built subways, built a lot of public housing, and had other benefits. 
where New York broke down famously was that they couldn't keep the spending up. They the spending ran outside of their tax base. And in the mid-1970s, New York didn't formally declare bankruptcy, but the bankruptcy papers were sitting on the mayor's desk, ready to be signed the next day. They constructed then the famous fiscal bailout in New York. So in effect, New York went bankrupt, but it didn't officially. So I can let me I can return to that. So let me do the three real quickly. Detroit grew very rapidly off the auto industry in the 1950s. Fewer black worker compared to you got the highest rate of or second highest rate of uh, pay in the United States compared to other cities. If you were in Detroit, that's because of the auto industry and the effects for of the UAW and the auto workers union. You still were disadvantaged if you were black compared to white workers within the union. You still had work worse jobs. Detroit and Detroit also then the economic development happens. Again, this is one of these places where the metropolitan city thing comes in. We say, oh yeah, Detroit auto industry. There was not a new auto plant built in the city of Detroit after 1937. There was one in the 90s, highly subsidized. And that meant that the tax base for the city was moving outside of the city. So you had a lot of workers in Detroit, but not new investment. Now, some of that's technological. It's easier to build an auto plant on a greenfield site that's one story high and has rail connections. But some of that was a deliberate attempt to get away from the city's taxing and regulatory control. Henry Ford moved his complex outside of the city of Detroit the River Rouge complex was in the city of Dearborn, where Henry Ford's cousin was the mayor. The Dearborn was almost deliberately built as a city to just pass the Detroit line and just pass Detroit's ability to annex. And then that becomes Detroit becomes racialized very fast. Detroit is probably the paradigmatic case of what happens with racial tension that the region can't overcome and becomes very polarized racially to the detriment, I think, of everybody in the region. So that's their story. Los Angeles is... One of my more hopeful stories, actually, after the Rodney King riots in the 1990s, a group of people, academics, nonprofits, and union members said, we've got to do something. We have to get together around this informed, cross-group negotiating over different issues. That sounds kind of vague. Let me give you one example. In 2008, at the, the depth of the Great Recession, the financial crisis there was a ballot initiative to pay to raise the sales tax in Los Angeles to pay for the construction of the LA Metro. And in California, you need a two-thirds vote to pass a tax increase. That's a legacy of Proposition 13. And they got it. This movement in the depths of the biggest economic downturn since the Great Depression got people to vote to raise their own taxes to build the metro. And they did that, I think, because there are three groups working together all got something out of it. So you have construction unions along with private developers. They wanted growth. That's one group. The second group was communities of color who wanted good jobs. And they worked out a deal where a lot of the construction jobs in particular would be more racially integrated, still mostly men, but racially integrated. And then environmentalists who often are opposed to growth projects, but they got some move towards transportation. And so all three of those groups working together form this triangular alliance that has persisted through Los Angeles politics. Now, it's not nirvana. They fight with each other and they don't always agree on things. It takes constant negotiation. But for me, that's my hopeful story is that three groups, none of whom could have gotten what they wanted on their own, figure out ways to work with each other and move 
uh, policies forward toward for equality. It occurs to me that this isn't necessarily, it doesn't break down necessarily on partisan lines in that both New York State and, and California are very democratic. And I would think that the states might be more likely to be amenable to helping out, but but that's not, uh, that's, I guess that's not really the case. And I'm wondering if maybe it's the extent to which sort of, I'll get on my soapbox, it seems like zoning and NIMBY sort of issues where there are a lot of folks in these areas who aren't really crazy about bringing in poorer people. And a lot of these cities are, basically, it seems there's this huge gap between the sort of housing you talk about, the multi-million dollar stuff, and nothing in between, right? That and super low quality, not very good housing. I mean, is that is that sort of a big part of the issue or, or not? It is now, and I think we're probably soulmates on this. I'm a, I, I, it, NIMBYs now are an enormous problem for city growth, particularly in democratic cities. San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles are not building housing. We're kind of jumping to the, what I would say about housing. The evidence is very good that building, increasing housing supply, especially in denser areas, lowers rents and does not produce the gentrification that everybody fears and the displacement. But it is bad part of where progressives are now is to be anti-housing development and it's driving up rents and making cities harder to live in. So in, in the red states that you get sprawl, right? Exurban sprawl, but they still build more housing. That's bad for the environment and other sectors. So yeah, it's a big mistake now for progressives to oppose housing development. They see these rich, these really expensive places, which I don't mind that they're there as long as we tax them sufficiently. Those people in the in the $135 million penthouse aren't riding the subway. You know, they're not making it any yeah. worse for me in my daily commute. But we probably undertax them. That's another story. But we progressives now misread problem with housing and are wrongly opposing housing construction. That is a problem. It wasn't a problem so much in the periods I'm talking about, but it is, is becoming an increasing problem now. You mentioned uh, red states. I wanted to ask you about that because, of course, where cities are, well, the biggest, where the biggest cities are, that's changed a lot over time. I mean, four of the 10 largest cities in the U.S. are located in, in one state, Texas, which is a pretty red state, right? You have Houston, San Antonio, Dallas, and Austin. And I'm wondering if things are different there because of things like you mentioned, the, the zoning differences, or are, is the basic dynamic still fairly similar, fairly anti-urban? Um, I think it's more anti-urban. So what you've seen, like in California, remember Ronald Reagan comes out of California. So California hasn't always been pro-city. That's an accretion over time of political change there. But in these red states are quite anti-urban. So Texas is a great example. The cities you mentioned are the so-called Texas Triangle of Fort Worth, Dallas at one corner, Austin and San Antonio, another corner in Houston. They that triangle constitutes about 75% or more of Texas GDP. It's not cows and oil wells. There is some of that. But it's those urban areas are the drivers of the Texas economy, but they are disempowered at the state level and, and by hostile suburbs around those cities that drive the state economy. So to me, it's a great example of this disjunction between what makes the economy go and how the politics are organized. Increasingly, states 
they do this anyway, but increasingly red states are preempting is the word for it, cities. They're taking away cities' ability to do things on their own because, again, legally, back to Dillon's rule in the 19th century, they can do that. So during the massive heat waves this summer, Texas state legislature was considering, I don't know if they actually passed it, law forbidding cities to enact water breaks for workers. Let me just say that again. It sounds a little, every time I tell people that they don't believe, but it was like, that's interfering with commerce and we're not going to let Houston or Austin decide whether their workers, whether workers should be allowed to have water breaks, we're going to overrule their ability to do it. In the state of Missouri, the two major metropolitan areas, Kansas City and St. Louis, constitute about two thirds of the state's GDP. Both of those cities passed minimum wage increases uh, just for the city, not for the state. And the, the Missouri state legislature overrode the minimum wage increases, rolled them back. And then passed a law saying no city in the state can pass a minimum wage increase. And you see this over and over again in the red states. So there's quite an active preemption campaign now in red states to control cities doing anything to move towards equality. And I think was there has there also been a movement in a number of states when when cities wanted to do municipal broadband, I think doing that same sort of preemption sort of thing, saying that uh, you're not allowed to, to do that as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I tell you, it's not entirely all red states. New York, Albany in New York, blue state, blue city. There's a lot of preemption that the state government exercises over New York City, which creates problems for New York City government's finances. The state legislature will raise the pensions of city workers, but not pay for it. <laughs> Stick those costs on the city. So it's not exclusively a red state problem, but it's much more exacerbated now in the red states. There was some, there was a, a small town in Texas, I'm forgetting the name, where a Republican mayor wanted to ban, ban plastic bags or at least charge for them in stores because he said it's very messing up our town. As a Republican guy and the state legislature passed a law preempting no city can do that. They can't uh, preempt plastic bags. So the it's a big challenge to cities who want to act on their own. And I think this is one of the things that I hadn't realized when I went into writing the book that really stood out for me is the powerful role that states play in our federal system and the particular impact they have on cities. One thing I've heard a lot of folks on the right say is that the real problem with cities is that they're one party democratic controlled systems. And because you don't have any real meaningful political opposition, you get Essentially, what we see in almost any one party system, they're inefficient. You get this sort of arrogance of power. They're mismanaged. There's a lot of corruption, crime, all of these things that they link to basically the lack of accountability because there's a lack of competition. And I wanted to get your take on that. I think there's something to it. I believe it more from those critics if they then looked at their own red state (laughs) governance and said, you know, gee, it's our, our party dominates the state legislature and dominates all these suburbs. And what we need is more uh, more fairly drawn legislative districts to have fair competition. I think there's something to that, but it is not exclusive for uh, democratic cities. But let's stay with the inefficiency and mis- mismanagement problem. That is a challenge, I think, in any one party governance system, but it's not the main explainer of city problems. So um, let me go back to Detroit. When as racial disharmony in the region grew and grew in the 1980s, uh, uh, 
mayor got elected in Detroit. Coleman Young was his name, a, a kind of black nationalist rhetoric guy, had been actually a communist union organizer in his youth, got into power and just was a fierce critic of the white suburbs around him who returned fire on him in very graphic ways uh, in this polarization. But Coleman Young, this black nationalist talking mayor of Detroit, balanced the budget. He balanced the city budgets three or four years in a row by laying off mostly black city workers and still couldn't get any aid from the state, couldn't get financing, couldn't get assistance. In fact, the state broke some promises to Detroit after Young's term about if Detroit enacted tax cuts, the states would then compensate them with revenue and then didn't. So like, there's something you could get corruption and mismanagement. It'd be great to do away with it. I'd like to have more fair elections everywhere. But that's, I think, not the main explainer of city problems. So let's turn to possible solutions. I mean, uh, given that this is clearly a problem and it's harming harming us in a lot of ways, what what do you see as a path, at least a potential path forward? What sort of things can, presumably cities acting on their own, can not can only go so far? So how do we coordinate cities, states, and the federal government? What sort of things do you envision as a way to be potentially effective to minimize the, the problem of inequality and, and urban by, anti-urban bias? Well, my blue sky idea, which is just, it's a thought experiment because it can't happen, but it illustrates the challenges that of our current system. Some some geographers in 2016 mapped all of the, what economists call commuting zones, just trips people took for business, and they identified economic clusters in the United States. And in the lower 48 states, they produced this great map that had about 52, I think, economic clusters accounting for almost all the commuting trips in the United States, 98% of them. And then they gave them names, and they weren't along traditional state lines. They were centered on metropolitan regions and cities. And I thought, gee, what if you just got rid of the states <laughs> and instead we, we had 50 city states, right? Just if you think about it for a second, there'd still be Republicans and it wouldn't be uh, some kind of socialist nirvana, but you'd have a lot different politics than you have now on a variety of dimensions. And so I offered that thought experiment, wish, wishful idea that can't happen, but a way of thinking how misaligned our politics and our economies are now. Okay, but we have that misalignment. We're not going to change the Constitution and get rid of state governments. So what can they do? I think there's both things cities can do internally and then in regional cooperation. So let me start with the internal work. Uh, Cities, particularly cities that have some growth going on in them, the Texas cities, Los Angeles, New York, need to, one, support more development, this anti-development urge, both in housing and in economic development among progressives is a mistake. Just look to Los Angeles, where one of the things that this movement I talked about pioneered are things called community benefit agreements. Very often, these projects, economic development projects, will get tax breaks from the city, or they'll get infrastructure, or they'll get uh, favorable land terms. And Los Angeles said, okay, we'll give you those breaks, but we want meaningful contractual obligations that this benefit we're giving you, the company, will produce jobs for us or will produce an, a net economic benefit. And those are going to be enforceable. Uh, so those community benefit agreements, I think, have worked quite well 
in a number of cities. It is another layer of regulation on development, and you could you can get too out of control trying to layer things on. But I think that's one thing they can do. There are things that they should stop doing, giving targeted tax breaks like opportunity zones or enterprise zones to particular poor neighborhoods uh, in cities. On the idea that you're going to attract capital investment is a bad idea. The research shows it doesn't work. It gives people, rich people, a tax break, but doesn't produce the jobs that you want. You're much better off to these labor markets aren't neighborhoods. They're regional. Tim Bardick at the Upjohn Institute is probably our best thinker on this right now. The things that you can, that cities can do in regions. He would have uh, employment vouchers, training vouchers that poor and underemployed people could use throughout the region. What you want to do is improve the housing where the poor people live, but not try and force economic development and business development into those neighborhoods. It just doesn't work. We want to make people more mobile and participate in the regional labor market. That also brings you to a second thing cities can do. One, of course, improve their basic education, but also their workforce development systems through community colleges and elsewhere. By administration, it hasn't gotten as much attention as a lot of their other industrial policy activities, but have been pushing hard on using community colleges as a bridge to, to improve education and to train people for good jobs that don't require a four-year college degree. If you look in healthcare, other care work, uh, some of the tech industry, there's a lot of well-paying, steady work that can be done with some training that doesn't require a four-year liberal arts education. That's tricky because minority groups worry that you're trying to steer their kids away from college, but you could also design those community college credits in a way that they could roll into a four-year degree. So there's workforce development work to be done. That needs to be coordinated regionally. The federal government could break down that. Each of the each of these little cities and towns in the metropolitan area has its own workforce development board and get separate streams of money from the feds that ought to all be consolidated or at least coordinated. Same thing with transportation policy. And then the, the third big thing they can do is housing. And we talked about this already. Cities should just build housing, even if it's, quote, just, quote, luxury or market rate housing. Although there, if you have a strong market, you can attach affordable housing goals for people. We aren't we don't have the funds and cities aren't going to get them anytime soon to build a hundred percent subsidized public housing. So what you need to do is leverage the market and get affordable housing as part of the overall market rate housing that's being built. Negotiate hard for high set asides to get that, but don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Leverage demand for housing and include affordable housing as a component of those housing projects. Also look for better jobs. Construction unions, which some of them had a very bad racial history in the United States, are much better now about inclusion. New York City's building trades and New York City's unions generally are led by a guy named Vinny Alvarez, who's very focused on bringing non-traditional populations into unions. Actually, New York unions have a lot of that now. Los Angeles did that with the metro construction. So there are ways that you can align both that housing construction with the needs of the less well-represented Black and other communities that haven't seen the benefits of economic development. And I- so those are the three. So there's economic development, things you can do. There's workforce and labor issues, and there's housing. 
And so all three of those things obviously present some significant political challenges. And I always like to close on an at least as optimistic as possible note. I know you said that kind of uh, going into this, you maybe were more optimistic than you than you ended up. But if you could point to any one thing that you actually see happening uh, that's a cause for optimism, this what would that be? I would still look at Los Angeles. Los Angeles has problems. They're not great on housing construction. But if you look at the trajectory of California from some a place that really was anti-urban, the, the Ronald Reagan again comes out of California with a very anti-city bias. It is now, for all the knocks California gets in the press, California is still a pretty good place. If they would build housing, they'd be a really good place. It's a much more equal society. They care about environmental work and they care about equity and economic growth and equity. And I think a lot of that is driven by city-based movements, in particular this Los Angeles-based movement that I talked about and that I talk about in the book. So that's optimistic to me that, that under very difficult circumstances, different groups that don't necessarily have the same interests labor unions, private economic developers, communities of color, and environmentalists have found ways to work together and get things that benefit all of them. So that's my my hopeful story, that we'll see more of that. As, because I think cities will remain the drivers of the economy. There's a little bit of dispersion of jobs now with the rise of working from home under the pandemic, but those, that's within metropolitan areas mostly. People aren't scattering across the country. So the metropolitan areas I think will still be the drivers of economic innovation and growth and places and this hopeful case of Los Angeles to me, again, not perfect, but a hopeful case are ways that that different groups have gotten together to make sure that the benefits of that innovation are more equitably shared. All right. Well, on that hopeful note, we will close. Richard McGay, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, thank you for the time. Thanks for letting me expand on some of these ideas, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this Politics Guys interview. If you're not already a supporter of the show, I hope you'll consider becoming one, because without our supporters, we wouldn't be able to do this. And when you become a supporter, you get not just that warm, fuzzy feeling, knowing that you're supporting a good cause, I like to think we're a good cause, but you also get stuff like ad-free versions of everything we put out. You get our supporter-exclusive midweek show, the full length of that, not just the preview. And you also get to be part of our Discord group if you want, and there's always some interesting conversations going on there. At the $10 a month level or more, you get to actually be part of the episodes Jay and I do, if that's something you're interested in. So there's a lot of stuff, is what I am saying, and I hope you'll consider checking it out. And to do that, just go to patreon.com slash politics guys. If you want to support us on Venmo, we're at politics guys. You can also support the show through PayPal and all of our support links are always in the show notes as well as at politicsguys.com slash support. And as always, I want to close with a very special thank you to our wonderful executive producers, Bruce Johnson, Wilma Moreno, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby.